Hello, this is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. On today's show, I have Miles Irving from Forager Limited. So welcome, Miles. Hello, Robin. Hi. You've been a bit of a kind of um, pioneer and thought leader and foraging guide for many many years I think really before certainly before I started teaching and before foraging and wild food appearing on kind of high-end front-end cutting-edge restaurants even kind of was on the radar so I'm very curious about your own journey through the plant kingdom and in what on earth got you into foraging? I mean, what? How did you learn to forage? Um, well, first of all, well, I'll, I'll, I'll refer back to that in a minute. But just to, to just to say about the, you know, more recently, like this this um, scene that's happened in the last sort of fifteen years or so. I feel like um, it really is kind of like a zeitgeist thing, and and um, this like I feel like I've been drawn in. By other people's interest, you know, like I had reached a stage where um, my early experience of foraging, which was picking mushrooms mainly and berries and fruit, which is I was, you know, I was blessed enough to have a granddad that just had a little bit of knowledge, and he got me inspired and started up when I was six. So you know, I'd always done that. But the time when I really started engaging with the, the plant kingdom, as you say, um, it was a time when there was just beginning to be quite an intense interest among chefs. So, you know, it was like my own um, sort of sniffing around after something which had, which had caught my imagination was massively enhanced by the fact that there were chefs who um, saw this as a way in to what they were trying to do in terms of creating recipes which reflected landscape, seasonality, and just, just were a bit more real, you know, like they came through some real process rather than, um, you know, like an industrial process and so on. So it it, it does feel to me like um, there's a whole thing that's been drawn out in terms of people's interest in um, in landscapes and, and the plants and the sort of cultural roots of people relating more. Um, so, you know, you know, I mean, whilst you can sort of point it back and, and see a role in terms of you know, we've probably got other people interested. It it, it does just seem like um, a thing with a life of its own, really, that people and plants are somehow just being very much brought back together, you know, like where, where um, I don't know, you can look at things like the body shop and all, all of the other, the, the other sort of commercial threads which have really um, strongly put plants in, into our culture now. You know what I mean? Like if you go and have a shower, yeah. look, look, at, look at what you're putting on your head or your body or whatever. Um, oh, it's so much in the way of actual wild plant species have ended up being um, almost cultural icons in that sort of way. Um, and I, I just feel like you and me, we've, we've just ended up turning up at the party. At the, at, 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 well, you know, it, it just feels like something that is happening that we're all part of yeah yeah they definitely seem to be making their way into the households of britain covertly and overtly in some instances yeah. so 
on the overtly kind of side, you've run this company Forager down in Kent. Mm. What is Forager? How did that? How did that start? And what? Well, yeah, I mean, I could just put some flesh on the bones of what I just said there, really, because, um, you know, I was beginning to um, really get engaged with plants back in, um, like, 2002, 2003. That just just started uh, to to, um, become much more of a focus. And, you know, I was going out foraging with my girlfriend then, um, who's now my wife, Ali, um, and we were starting to learn some plants, but mainly because she, she got me this book. Uh, well, we'd already started trying to learn the plants, but she got me this book called Carluccio Goes Wild by Antonio Carluccio, which had only about 25 plants in it. But um, we were just really getting stuck in. And this was, this was um, helped by just the quality of the recipes in that book. You know, just simple Italian recipes where... We'd go on a quest for whichever plant the recipe was for. That was what was driving it. We want to be able to cook that recipe. So it'd be wild sorrel or wild wild uh, garlic or uh, nettles is an easy one, but that that was then transformed into nettle gnocchi, which was definitely not the easiest recipe. Anyway, it was just this instant satisfaction that was coming, you know, deep satisfaction and, and celebrated with friends who we were sitting down to dinner with. Now, I should say, this was kind of making good something that had happened... Um, about 18 years previously, I had tried to sort of uh, broaden my repertoire um, after seeing a wild food book on a friend's bookshelf. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of plants in there. We were, uh, at that time, I was only a, really a mushroom forager and a fruit and nut forager as far as plants were concerned. And we went out and foraged fat hen, which was in the book, cooked the recipe, which was in the book. And the recipe is really bad, um, it was just really, uh, I just didn't find the, the, the final result very satisfying at all. And it just put me off plants. I thought, well, you know, here's my earliest experience, right, going out foraging with my granddad, and he cooks the stuff up. And he's a rubbish cook, but, like, you can't really get that. Cooking a mushroom, you can't really get that wrong very, too easily. And, and so they were delicious. That was an immediately self-reinforcing thing. Blackberries the same, roasted chestnuts the same. So... This, to me, just, it was like a, a, a shudder coming down. Like, it, it, it seemed to me that plants were just not as, just not as good. They're not as tasty. And so that cost me basically 18 years of my plant journey. I worked out the other day. Wow. Which was all, <laughs> it was all made good by this fantastic book by Antonio Carluccio, you know. And, and there I was with Ali, cooking these things up and having a great time. So... This is where we get to the bit where I actually answer your question. We, we rocked <laughs> up at a place called The Good Shed in Canterbury. And it was a brand new opening. There was um, a local produce market, which today, to this day, I think is the best produce market in the country. Above it, there's this mezzanine area with a restaurant using the stuff from the, from the market. And a guy called Blaise Basseur, the, the chef there, was really trying to um, do, a, and was doing a great job of, local produce, some organic stuff, seasonal produce, all from the market. Just like the kind of thing I was saying with the, the, what the chefs were um, really hungry after at that time. But he was an interesting guy because he'd, you know, he's half French and he'd seen people like Michel Bra and Marc Ferrar um, really with the whole Nouvelle Cuisine thing in the, in the 90s, crafting 
food around landscape and really with a strong emphasis on the wild plants. So he knew that was the missing bit. Okay, so we rock up. We see wild garlic soup. No, we saw soup of the day on the menu. Asking what the soup of the day was, we must have registered some disappointment when the guy told us it was wild garlic soup. But that was only because we've been eating so much of the stuff ourselves, you see. Yeah. And you know what it's like. You're not going to go out and want to eat in the restaurant what you've been doing yourself. We wanted something a bit different. Yeah. But when we explained that to this guy, he went and got the chef. who's just very excited saying, look, you know, you're doing some foraging. We really want that here. Can you help us? Can you work with us? And he, and he kind of made me promise that I would come the next day with, with a bag of wild garlic for them because they didn't actually have a regular supplier for that. I'm not quite sure where they'd got it from, but they were keen for me to do that. So that's how we got started, Robin. Just this one guy that could see how the whole movement towards local seasonal produce had to have wild food as part of it, you know. Yeah. Um, so and Yeah, I think he was quite visionary in that sense because no one else was really seeing that at the time. At least they didn't have a kind of, like, he had a bee in his bonnet about it. We, you know, we later phoned people like... Um, Mark Hicks and Richard Carr, oh, I say that, we phoned their, their chefs, you know, their boys in the kitchen. Yeah. We said, oh, Mark would want this, Richard would want this. But to them, it was just, it was kind of part of, part of the thing. But it wasn't like they were on the search, like, got to make this happen, because they already were using the bit, and we just helped them to, to prosper. You know, this, this guy, Blaze, he was, he was really hungry for it. So had he not been, you know, really compelled me virtually to bring stuff in, so what I'm trying to say is I didn't have this great entrepreneurial spark there that was saying wild food is it, you know, for, 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 for the restaurants. This is yeah. the way it's going. You know, I didn't, it took me about four months to really put a penny to drop where I asked this guy, do you have some like-minded friends who would also like to have this kind of stuff on their menu? Prior to that, I was just doing it to please him. You know? Yeah. Just like, all right, mate, okay. I'm glad you're interested in this. Have some of that then. Yeah. So I suppose the 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 one of the the questions that comes to mind that obviously you and I have had um, somewhat heated discussions in the past over is around the. Let me just clarify that heated discussions in the past until we started understanding each other. Yeah. Um, and realizing that we were both in the same world view regarding wild food so the the question that 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 often i see on social media when people post is is it sustainable yeah is gathering wild plants personally and to supply outlets restaurants etc is it is it is it sustainable so let's start with a controversial one yeah well obviously this is one we've banded you know bounced back as a loads of times and um you know, as you say, I think we have a common view now, like, which is basically that that's the wrong question, yeah? Yeah. Um, so the question is, is the global food system as is sustainable? And and since, you know, pretty much everybody would agree that it's not, I suppose where we start from having agreed that it's not is that we have to be looking for alternatives. So, you know, if foraging for plants was just some thoughtless thing that, that we did um just off the cuff, because we can and who cares, sort of thing. Well, um, that would be one thing. But actually, the exploration 
of gathering wild food for, well, gathering food from the wild, I should say, in terms of it being a potential avenue um, for feeding a lot of people. When we see that as uh, as an initiative towards doing things differently, then then I think you know that's a, that's a very different starting point. It isn't just people just grabbing out of self-interest and no no care for the market. Um, then I think there's a, there's a couple of there's a couple, you know I mean it's a big big question this one, but like the, the things the things you want to cover is first of all the methodology of most of what we do, and I think most foraging is the bulk of it is picking leaves, yeah, or maybe picking the the um, the flowering stems before they flower. And what you notice with that is it's just the same sort of thing that any gardener does all the time. So they'll cut the lawn, and what happens? The lawn goes back. Nobody would say. Uh, I sometimes facetiously say, "Is cutting the lawn sustainably sustainable?" Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we know, you know, we know that it's not even an issue. It just seems like a silly question. Yeah. Well, for us, where we're cutting leaves and they're growing back, in all of those cases, it does seem like a silly question. But if you do something like gather the um, the uh, fruits of the uh, wild garlic, I call them fruits because it's a technical name, like the seeds. Yeah. The thing that develops after the flowers. Now, where people have done that and, and not been thoughtful, what's happened is that the wild garlic gradually sort of shrinks. And, you know, if someone did that for long enough, that the, the wild garlic would disappear. Sure. But that's obviously not sustainable. So it's just, you know, just a, a bit, bit of basic thought about the life cycles of plants. Does cutting a leaf hurt that plant? No. Yeah. Uh, does taking the fruit hurt the plant not yet but it will do if you keep doing it of course and you don't allow some seed to go back down to the ground so but i suppose the point is that anyone with any intelligence um will notice that happening and will amend what they do and in fact the only reason i know about that we we, we have always just taken a few of those right we've never done a kind of let's take everything on the um on the uh, wild garlic fruits but i know someone that has been a bit more gung-ho on it and he noticed and he fed that back to the foraging community so you know we're trying to get word out to uh, anyone which is good that it's going out on your podcast because it's going to reach some more anyone's you know if you're picking wild garlic fruits or rams and capers as they put them they call them yeah for goodness sake you know take maybe like 30 percent of what's there don't take 100 percent because you ain't gonna have a harvest next year neither is anybody else well you will next year but like in three or four years' time, your thing's going to disappear. So it's that kind of thoughtfulness. Um, if, if you do it thoughtfully, um, and of course that's what people always would have done, like the hunter-gatherers who had, had this as, as, a, as a way of life that had developed through generations and generations. What, what it means is when you depend on the landscape for everything, you have this kind of sense of the sacred about it. You have this sense of an emotional bond with it. And you have this sense that you are, you know, a custodian and a steward of the things which, which, which have been given to you. And that means that you are deeply, deeply concerned about the well-being of the whole landscape and individual species. To the point that, you know, I mean, you know this, Robin, like that the, um, the, the, the um, tribal societies would have, you know, particular stories and mythologies around... Particular species, or in the case of the Aboriginal Australians, they had um, 
individuals who would be responsible for the care of one particular species. You know, there's just no way they would be um, driving something to extinction that was part of that um, system of, of uh, well, kinship. Basically, they had a sense of kinship. With yeah, they did. Or they do. The ones that remain. They do. Yeah. I think what that 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 brings up for me is is this. I'm very interested in world views and mm. how world views um, influence our relationship with not only ourselves, each other, but the rest of the earth. And yeah. the world view of civilized, in quotes, peoples, modern technological, industrial, information, culture yeah. peoples, is one of scarcity. And... Uh, yeah. The worldview of the hunter gatherer, and you you can you can check this out with people like Marshall Salin in his who was an anthropologist in his book Stone yeah. Age Economics, and you know there's numerous anthropological works out there that have um, studied hunter gatherer. He wrote a thing called the Original Affluent Society, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So so the the point of that is that the worldview of the hunter gatherer is one of abundance. It's not yeah. one of scarcity. It's one of the land provides. Um, um, we are, you know, we're grazing animals, we're caretakers as well. Our grazing is a caretaking practice. And whereas in the in the so-called civilised world, we we don't caretake. We we live in a scarcity place, which is take, exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, we eat 30 species of plough-grown plants in a year, it's estimated, you know, hunter-gatherers eat hundreds, as you and I know. So mm. the worldview is, is topsy-turvy. It's very different. So when, like you say, when someone says, oh, is foraging's not sustainable, you know, everyone's going to hit the royal parks, it's like, well, um, <laughs> it's not sustainable if you're coming from the worldview of a, of a dog-eat-dog, mine, 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 I take for me and fuck anyone else. Yeah. Um, no, of course it's not sustainable. But... As you've pointed out on numerous occasions and through numerous discussions, as foragers, we are intimately connected to our land base and we can see the influence our gathering practices have on the land. And because we are foragers, you know, this isn't some little bit of garnish on the side of a plate we're getting. We feed ourselves through the local landscape. So we're actually very, very acutely aware of our impact. Yeah on our local terrain so yeah, and- what so so that kind of feeds into you know when when people when the headlines get have a bit of a hissy fit and they all start saying oh you know we should be banning foraging like the new forest puts up these these not illegal yeah. <laughs> you know these signs take warning people not to pick or the old parts come out you know all, all red in the face but can you expand on the whole thing of kind of the the problem of conservation as preservation. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, a, so I suppose the thing is, where we've ended up, right, is that there's a, there's a kind of business as usual on the one hand thing that, that is implicit in the idea of um, conservation. Because what conservation does is it just sort of draws a line around certain bits of land says, okay, we're going to conserve these bits because these bits are special. Uh, and they may well be special, but the point is, but by, by default, everywhere else then is, is um, kind of not special. 
I mean, it's a bit simplistic, but it's basically the idea is that we accept that the whole industrial consumer-driven society is, 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 a, is a given, it's a reality, and we're not going to change that. So basically, everywhere else is just accepted that it won't be diverse, lush, thriving ecosystems, you know. And, and I mean anywhere else, like London or your local housing estate or the field where the wheat that makes your bread comes from. You know, we just accept that we've lost that. It's gone. Yeah. But now we've got to cling on to this other bit over here. And of crucial and central importance about clinging on to this other bit over here is that there's no humans uh, apart from the ones that are managing it for conservation. You know. We basically are saying that the place of the wild, this wild space, is a space that, that the humans aren't in. And in order to conserve it, we need humans out. You know. And that's just false. I mean, it's just basically false. Because other than this kind of fairly new thing that's coming in now about rewilding where, where they are trying to create landscapes with, with nobody in it, all the existing stuff around SSSIs and nature reserves, they're basically trying to recreate habitats which have only arisen because of humans, not in spite of or in the absence of, but because of humans. Yeah. So they'll cut the reeds now because that, that promotes the presence of certain birds. And then they don't know what to do with the reeds. We had a, well, we've got a place near us where, well, I know, natural England are scratching their heads wondering what to do with all the reeds that they cut. Now, the only reason they know that this creates a habitat for, for birds, which is, causes them to flourish, is people used to cut the reeds in order to thatch houses. Sure. Right? Now we're not doing that. We're not using it, which is, oh dear, commercial foraging. Yeah. Oh dear, you know, shock horror. There used to be commercial foraging on the reed beds. Now, there's just natural England cu cutting them and piling them up and wondering what to do with it. It's not commercial foraging anymore, so that's better, isn't it? That's um, bonkers, isn't it? And so, and so on the other hand, you've got situations like in um, the, uh, the, the, the Kenya, the areas of the Maasai tribes, and in Yosemite National Park. These were some of the first natural na national parks, nature reserve type things. And in both cases, ethnic cleansing was essential to the program. Whoa. Let's get these indigenous people off the land so that yeah. we, in our wisdom, can manage it for wildlife. Okay. Well, those guys have been managing it for everybody. Wildlife, humans, plants, whatever you want, for thousands of years. But implicit in this... So the, the cornerstone of those conservation movements elsewhere, I don't say in the UK, but elsewhere, were, were racist, imperialist, colonialists, and plain wrong, because they tried to create a fiction of yeah. a pristine wilderness untouched by human hands. And the fact is those landscapes were the product of people working as part of the landscape, just like any other species. And the point for me, Robin, is that humans are a keystone species. This okay, is so, so, for, so for people who don't know what a keystone species is, could you yeah. briefly explain? Yeah, well, of course, it's a, this, is, this is a cornerstone of, of uh, conservation thinking. And one that I agree with, like in Yellowstone National Park, when they reintroduced the wolves, the wolves are a keystone species because they have a, a much greater impact on the overall functioning of the ecosystem or the thriving of that landscape, you know, than any other species because they keep basically they keep the grazing animals moving, so nothing gets grazed too heavily, and 
it's complex anyway. Beavers are the same. They, 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 in a different way, they create the floodplain that causes a lot of species to flourish. Yeah. So the point is that when we are embedded in our surroundings, we have a disproportionately strong effect on, on the landscape that makes it flourish. Also, we have a disproportionately terrible effect when we're not embedded. But either way, we're a keystone species. We're having more influence on, 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 on the biosphere than any other species. But the point is, what's gone wrong? And what's gone wrong is when we were vitally connected to land. And when I say vitally, like we were practically, economically, socially, and emotionally connected. So in all these ways, we were connected. You know, we were, we were eating food from land and we were made from molecules that came from here. And now we're the only species on the planet that doesn't, you know, like a squirrel is made from stuff from here. He doesn't, he doesn't have imports and stuff from plastic bags that came from somewhere. Yeah. He just eats what's from here. You know, so in all of these different biological, every other kind of way, we were vitally connected to the land. And that's how our keystone speciesness was functional. Because we were, of course, like any other species, changing, disrupting, disturbing, altering because life is a flow of movement and exchange, you know, and if, if we weren't disturbing, disrupting, altering, moving, then we'd have been dead, you know, but because we were alive, we were making things other than they would have been had we not been there, but the point is they were better because we were there. Yeah. I know we can debate, like, certain things, people, most people are pretty convinced that the humans wiped out the megafauna, I'm not convinced about that totally, but regardless, if we did or not, the enhancement of land on the whole, with, with human presence, was, 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 was beneficial. So, uh, the point for me, Robin, is that the vital connection between humans and land, that's the thing we need to be conserving. Yeah. And the conservationists have got it totally wrong, because the very thing that is the keystone, the cornerstone of biodiversity, is people being connected to landscapes, people being economically engaged with landscapes, people making use of all of the wild things that are there so that they have, um, well, we're involved in the complexity of land. Instead of which, we go onto a piece of land, sweep absolutely everything off, kill the fungi, the bacteria, the plants, the animals, the insects, everything, just so that we can get one thing. And then that one thing comes into us. So the point is that bio, biology is wonderfully complex and diverse and therefore flourishes. Whereas humans reduce landscapes and, and apply a, a, a sort of mechanistic thing, so we just want one thing. But then we're also treating our bodies like a, a mechanism, and we're giving it one thing. So from that field that we killed everything, yeah, we just get starch, we yeah. get carb. We put that in our bodies, what happens? Our system breaks down, the land breaks down, we break down. It's all a mess. So um, it... Yeah. I mean, this is we could we could have a, a week long conference just on on this one particular area, which maybe hopefully sometime down the line we will. But I just yeah. want to I just want some some of the listeners to to realise what our removal from being embedded with our with our land base has has caused. Mm. I've got some figures here that actually I picked up at the weekend at um, a wow. gathering that I was at, and and you know. With soil depletion, so when we've got we've the stats, people. Got the stats, man. <laughs> the stats yeah, it's it. in the book. It must be real. So anyway, just just entertain. This is from like the 
people like the World Wildlife Foundation. So, so globally, we're losing 75 billion tonnes of soil each year. Already half of the topsoil on the planet over the last 150 years, according to the WWF. And we're seeing a persistent decreased productivity on 20% of our croplands due to nutrient depletion, erosion and pollution. So that's pretty frightening when everyone's going, oh no, we can keep, we can keep farming in the kind of industrial way that we have been doing. We so, so another one with farming is half the world's population live in rural areas and 90% of the world's farms remain small scale but they're in mm. decline and squeezed onto only 25% of the world's farmland. That's from Grain Report, Hungry for Land. Um, in the UK, the number of small farms decreased by 11,000 between 1987 and 2003, and only 1% of the total workforce in the UK consists of agricultural workers, compared mm. to, for example, 49% in Thailand or 75% in Uganda. And when you go into... In, when, when, so we have to discern the difference between industrial farming and agriculture and more um, traditional cultural cultures way of farming you know if you're going to mm. Asia there or India I'm going to India in January and I'm mm. hooking up with with local farmers who get a huge amount of their their food produce from from the forest you know yeah. they are foraging farmers and there's this debate yeah, exactly. oh farming happened in agriculture happened you know there was this there was this absolute rigid line that came in through right we were hunter gatherers now we're farmers and that's just in with all the recent kind of research and evidence that that's come out through anthropology um i think you know you and i have discussed a chap called james c scott who's written a book against the grain and and it's absolutely not like that you know native americans would plant crops they just didn't do it in the same industrial way we plant crops and I know people... And also, they even did selective breeding to begin with. Today, they were just... Don't know, know about that. Think... So that kind of, yeah. you know, importance of, of us getting embedded back into our landscape is absolutely, I mean, just vital. So yeah. I want to just quickly move on because you and I for years, have, or maybe not years, but certainly quite a while, have talked about how can we, how can we engage... The, pe the population of Britain yeah. more with wild food um, bearing in mind that was it something like 80% of people live in cities and you know the time is scarce and all this kind of thing which again is a bit of a, a myth in, in our industrial worldview that we don't have enough time to forage food for us so you've recently come up with an idea for something called wild box the wild box, yeah. Yeah, so could you just tell us more about that and what, what, what yeah. the purpose of that is for? So the wild box, um, at face value, appears to be like a subscription veg box containing wild plants, and it is that, but really it's a tool, uh, it, it's a way to learn the plant. Other than having some, uh, you know, a mentor that you kind of almost live with, um, or certainly you you have regular contact with it's I think it's probably the most effective way that you could learn a lot of plants just week on week because what I've noticed is the thing that that, that um, a lot of us do now I'm talking about you know foraging people like you and me that that that, um, that are trying to educate people 
So we take people out for a day, and it's a very inspirational thing for people because they get to see basically the possibilities of, um, you know, sometimes you might see 30, 40 plants or even more in the course of a day. But there's no way that anyone can properly engage with all of those 30 or 40 plants and, and retain that in their memory. Yeah. I mean, I've done things like get them to stick each plant in a book. Sure. And then they've got like a little herbarium of everything they saw. Um, and that means if they wanted to, they'd go back out with the book. But in, in practice, it only really works for the keenest, you know, who probably people end up being foraging teachers themselves. Yeah. Most people, they might at best learn three or four plants that they actually would use again in the next week or the next fortnight. And likely or not, they'd probably come back to the same course next year and, and, and have to almost start from scratch. And that's perfectly understandable because, you know, the way that we would learn that information ordinarily in real life, in traditional societies, is you, you, you wouldn't even notice that you learnt it. And when you learn, notice how you learnt to speak, because you just pick it up, you just absorb it from your surroundings. And you'd absorb it when you're sitting down with everybody at, at the afternoon where they're preparing things, and you'd absorb it when you eat it three times a day and, and, and so on. So I'm trying to do something which will actually bring people into a deep, well, just that they really do know a lot of plants and they really do get into a habit and lifestyle of eating a lot of plants. So by sending people seven plants every week and then not just leaving them to sink or swim with no further information, we provide what we call the weekly um, wild food navigation notes and those contain descriptions of the plants, four, five, six recipes depending on the week, which will enable them to use everything in the box. And then usually there's kind of just some other notes which, which are a bit more broad in their potential scope. Last week I was talking about some fields near my house and how that's accessible to us for, for various different plants. But I might just talk about, you know, what it means to follow through the seasons and, and, and see how things are changing. All sorts of different thought trains that, that I enter into with those, um, which are just trying to get people into that mindset of... of thinking about um, food in a different way as something that's coming from your local surroundings. But anyway, the point is that if people engage with this, and it's like it's 20 quid a week, so it's a little bit of an outlay, um, but if people engage with this, they will gradually get familiar with a lot of plants, or on the other hand, there'll be plants that they're already familiar with that they've never been able to make that leap of knowing about it as something you could eat to it being something you know by experience and you do eat, we're trying to just basically bridge that gap, either of total ignorance of the plant or, or that you're not actually using something you know you could. And I've worked out, having done the maths, because we had a provisional conversation last week, didn't we, Robert? Yeah. And, and, and I just went off and thought, I need to get the maths for this. So I've got stats too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like we've been going, last week was week 30, and with, with week 30, we presented people with... Uh, plant number 75 and 76. That's In other words, we have now covered 76 plants in 30 weeks. That's extraordinary. And with the, uh, the different parts of the plant that we've used, so some we've used the, the leaf, the stem, and the flower, whatever, you know, but all told, that is, that is 94 different ingredients that we've put out to people in, in 30, wow. 30 weeks. That's, that's, that's phenomenal. My, my brain's just popped because you mentioned that, you know, when we go out, 
um, into the landscape and we engage with plants on a daily basis, preferably a yeah. daily basis. That one of the one of the the cool ways is to you know pick a pick a plant, put it in a book, press it, and have our own little herbarium. But herbariums yeah. to me, I've always until well until a few years ago, I always thought, well, why do I want to look at these dry plants in a in a in a some kind of pressed flower press? Yeah. But actually, what what I think is really cool about the Wild Box is that you've created almost a living herbarium for people. Yeah. And you're not chucking it all at them in one go. They're not, you know, being hit with 76 plants and they go completely wowed out, but then they never do anything with it. They're actually slowly being drip fed. Here's this unique plant. Now, obviously, you've got nettle in there sometimes and dandelion, etc. But what I really like about about this project is that you're opening up people's minds to the absolute diversity of wild food plants in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, you know, 76 plants, you've already doubled the number of plants in, was it week 30? Um, then most people would eat in a year and you're giving them recipes. You can see the plant in, in, they can see the plant in their hand, but it does bring up a question for me. And, you know, it is getting a box through the post going to get, get them out there. I mean, how long should people be subscribed for? Is this, are you, are you kind of like some corporate business that just wants a customer for life and, and all that usual malarkey that, that um, big well, businesses do? Because I get a sense that actually you're trying to make yourself obsolete. Well, I suppose what I think is anyone that gets this box every week is going to start either recognising plants that they've seen in the box in their locality, especially if they're a gardener, you know, they're going to realise that they've been yanking these things out and calling them weeds for years. <laughs> Which is, yeah, I mean, so that, that, I mean, that pays for the box in itself. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden... I always think like here you are working hard to grow salads and pulling other things out which are actually superior salads in order to make room for the salads that you're trying to grow, uh, not knowing. It's bonkers. That's really bonkers, isn't it? I mean, this week, for example, we've got hairy bittercress going in the box, which most gardeners just hate and detest because it's so prolific and it explodes hundreds of seeds out when you touch it, uh, when it reaches that stage. And and then, you know, each of those seeds is going to create another hairy bittercress plant so you have this magical transformation from thinking curses it's done it again you know 100 bittercress seeds are going to now pollute my garden with another 100 bittercress plant to, to, to just almost want to kneel down and say thank you yeah thank you that i didn't even have to sow your seeds you've just sowed your own seeds and now i'm going to have more delicious bittercress plants all over my garden and i haven't had to do any other work other than accidentally bump into you and make you explode seeds everywhere yeah uh Anyway, so there's that category. People will realise that there's plants that, that, that have been there all along that they can eat because they now recognise them. And then there's the other category of people who knew about nettles and dandelions but didn't know what to do. Or they'd tried them and had a negative experience. And that's where my earliest story about the Carluccio book comes in. Well, with the fat hen, yeah? What's that? With the fat hen. With the fat hen, yeah. So I had a negative experience with the fat hen and I had a positive experience with the recipes in the Carluccio book. Mm-hmm. Which, 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 which enabled me to properly engage and connect with 
with with plants. So I've realised that actually the gulf that exists between people and those nettles that they're not gathering, that they never could, and they're known theory they could eat, the gulf is basically the lack of good recipes. And, and, and maybe it's also slightly the lack of the initiative to just gather that nettle and bring it into their house because it's a strange thing that they don't have a routine for. It's going to sting them and they have to remember to take gloves and whatever. Yeah. So we do that bit for them. And I feel like we are basically, it's like a match made in heaven. You know, here are we matchmakers. You know, you and nettles should get together. You're born for each other, that sort of thing. You know? Yeah. But how does that need to happen? Well, it needs to be a little process of that matchmaking, you know. And so we just weave people together with plants by giving them the plant, the recipe. There you go. And also a little incentive, you just spent 20 quid on this. I know for myself, having had a veg box for the last um, four or five years with a local organic farm, which we're keen to support because they let us pick their weeds. Um, and it's just so annoying throwing that stuff away because you just think, man, I've got to get more organized and learn to use this stuff. So I'm just saying that when you, when you actually pay for something, you're more likely to use it than if you picked those metals and didn't get around to it. You think, oh, well, I'll just pick some more. But if you paid me for them, you're going to want to use it. So all round, we're facilitating people actually getting around to cooking nettle soup or whatever other simple recipe we've given them. And the feeling they get after that is so self-reinforcing of the activity. I want to do it again. I feel so good. And next time, they want to pick them themselves. So either way, either because they've encountered a plant they didn't realize was there because now they recognize it or they've encountered a plant that they knew was there all along all of a sudden the wild box means that they're gathering the stuff from the environment so i would think that the vast majority of people are going to start foraging for themselves and sooner or later they'll just think they don't need us anymore and that's fine because you know there are whatever it is 70 million people in the uk we're not actually planning to do 70 million wild boxes (laughs) that means there's a limit somewhere and I don't know. At the moment, we think it's maybe a few thousand that we could do a few thousand people. Um, and then we'd have to cap it. So then we'd have a waiting list and we'd have to be sort of sending emails out going, come in, come in number seven, your time is up. Like, you've yeah. been a wild box customer for a year and a half now. Um, we think it's time you stood on your own two feet because there's lots of other people waiting to um, subscribe to the wild box. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an interactive educational tool extremely delicious because i've sampled some of your recipes and they're you know you put a lot of effort in and you've actually made them first there's so many blooming cookbooks out there where you know you (laughs) i don't know how what the percentage is but they you know some publisher approaches some celeb chef and he just reels off a load of recipes from his head he's he's kind of imagining them he hasn't actually made them so when everyone else starts trying to make them they end up tasting revolting looking revolting and just generally not doing what the book had promised but they bank on the fact that nobody will most of those cookery books are just things to yeah food porn aren't they they're coffee table books really aren't they yeah Yeah. so um, we're going to have to wrap and pack this pretty soon but has I understand that you've been getting a few awards for this little um, well we've got an award which is Good enough for us. We've you know we're only going for half a year, and uh, we we entered the uh, the Good Food Awards, which has um, I mean just everybody does enter it. So you know they've got lots of um, industry folk, lots of chefs, and um, other people that work in the industry judging all the different product categories. And there was a box scheme category, a subscription box category, and we won. So 
we were just bowled over by that. Bearing in mind that all of the big boys were in there, Gusto and, and Abel and Cole and Hello Fresh, they're all in there. Wow. Um, and we won with our, you know. And who was that? Who, who, who gave the award? The, the, the Good Food Awards. The Good wow. Food Awards. Yeah, the British Good F- F- Food Awards. Wow. Uh, no, sorry, the Great British Food Awards. Can't <laughs> blimey, I better get it right. Great <laughs> British Food Awards. There we are. Um, so you can go on our website and see that. And, um, and you know, so we've got this thing um, that will do what we're saying. It will initiate people into a, a wonderful world of wild plants and cooking them and eating them. Um, but I just want to say it isn't just for the general public because, like, w- when you said earlier about like sending seventy-five plants to somebody and they just wouldn't know what to do, we've realised after years that we've kind of been doing that with chefs. Mm-hmm. You know, especially since that initial reaction I got from from one guy. But bear in mind that one guy was only receiving one ingredient at a time. We go rocking up to see new chefs or have done naively, sort of hurling thirty-five ingredients at them at once, thinking. Yeah. But they'll just love us for it, you know. Um, and whilst the, 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 there's the odd one that is just, uh, just for some reason, lucky enough to have the time um, and a setup that enables them to experiment, most people, rather than doing them a favour, these chefs, like, we're just giving them a headache, you know. Here's a bunch of problems to solve. How yeah. to get Alexander's into your menu when it's actually quite a challenging ingredient. And it's no good me saying, oh, do this, do that, because that's not really, you know, if I was in the kitchen as part of a team, I could say, do this and do that and show them. Or over the phone, trying to explain or put it in a newsletter. Really, I've realized that by introducing new ingredients to chefs, we, we're just giving them a problem. But the wire box is the solution, and, and it's like, it means we can introduce the new things without it being a problem, because here we are, here's this new thing, and this is what to do with it. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're also really wanting to engage chefs with this, especially, you know, there's a lot of interest amongst chefs these days in the wild ingredients. A lot of young guys especially are wanting to learn for themselves. But there's not really tools to, to, to learn. So it, people tend to use the ones that everybody else uses that are already... And even then, the, the engagement might not be so um, thorough or, you know, might not really be exploring all the possibilities because, you know, like chickweed, yes, we can just put that on as a garnish, but, okay, what about um, a hogweed seed? What about the possibilities of hogweed leaf itself, you know, where... And the point is, you know, I'm not a chef, but I do cook with these things. Yeah. And I have cooked with these things for a long time. And I've had interactions with, with chefs who maybe have had an afternoon or, or a day to, to experiment. And we've, we've made some progress with disentangling or cracking the code of, of what is this ingredient about and so on. And so bit by bit by bit, for 20 quid a week, any chef kitchen, chef and kitchen or restaurant can, can take these seven ingredients and learn. And, and the whole team can learn just, yeah. just based around these seven ingredients bit by bit, drip by drip by drip every week and think about it like in the course of a year. I don't know what we'll be up to, but like we've done 76 in 30, 30 weeks, half a, just over half a year. So I'm thinking we'll definitely be over the 100 barrier, maybe 150, I don't know, but that's a lot of plants for a, or a lot of new ingredients for a chef um, to potentially get him, her and his, her entire team to, to, to know about. So, um, 
Yeah, we're quite excited about that. And the latest development, Robin, is we're about to launch um, a Patreon channel, which will be putting some more in-depth videos on there, which people can um, also access those. Um, Excellent. Uh, to get some extra information, yeah. Yeah, great. So just to wrap and pack, um, if people are interested in learning more about you, and I do have to say to folks that, I, I consider Miles to be kind of the philosopher forager. He has some extraordinary articles on his website under the blog section. Um, mm. Also, you can find out more about the Wild Box. And I assume everything is all under the same website, is it, Miles? Yeah, it's all on forager.org.uk. The front page is perhaps a little busy, but it does allow you to click through to pretty much everything we do. So forager.org.uk. That's great. Okay, and, for, and the, obviously all the, the links to connect with you will be in the show notes under this episode. So it's been, as ever, a real pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for coming on. Um, and we will... Yeah, pleasure to talk to you, Robin, as ever. Also. Yeah, we'll talk Likewise. soon. Yeah, cheers, all Robin. All right, mate. Cheers. Bye.